Um, the reading this morning is from Romans 2, um, verse 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, um, dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For uncircumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Why don't I pray just uh, before we come to God's word again. Father, we thank you for granting us your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come this morning and worship you. And we've worshipped you through, through song, through prayer, and even just through the act of gathering together, of actually taking out time and prioritizing being together and being in your presence but Lord we also worship you by listening to your word and so Lord we pray that you might speak through your word now pray that you might speak through me and although these words are challenging and in a world that that doesn't want to do honesty so long as it's actually exposing myself and making myself vulnerable and admitting my own failings my own need my own sin well, these words are challenging, and yet at the other end of them is grace, is redemption, is renewal. And so, Lord, we pray that as much as these words might challenge us this morning, that we might also find the medicine in you too. So, Lord, we pray that you might shape us and mould us now as we come to your word and are eager to hear from you. Amen. Just before we um, turn to that passage again, I've got a, a couple of notices as well. Um, 
Sunday the 6th and Sunday the 13th of March. Um, if you are sort of relatively new to Grace Church, and really I suppose I'm thinking if you've really come along at any time during the pandemic, really, where we've not been able to sort of do all of the sort of other things that we would normally do, one of them is that we would love to sort of regularly sort of do food together and stuff, and that's a way of building community and relationships together. Sadly, that's that's not been as easy uh, sort of to do as regularly. Sunday the 6th of March, Sunday the 13th of March, would really love to welcome you to come back for lunch at, at the manse afterwards. It would be great to get to chat with you, get to know you, and if you've got any questions and stuff about the church things, obviously you can feel free to ask them. My best answer might be I don't know, but if that's the case, then I'll try and find the right answer for you. Um, so yeah, I would love to invite you to those. Um, and then also, Karis, is it next Thursday, the, the coffee and cake thing? Yeah, this, this coming. Yeah. Yeah. Either this Thursday or next Thursday, and this is perhaps an incentive to, if you're not on Slack regularly, to be on Slack. If you're wondering what Slack is, that's the app that we sort of keep in touch on, and there is an orange flyer just by the welcome desk there that you can get and get signed up onto there. Either this Thursday or next Thursday morning uh, from 11 onwards. We, again, we'd love to welcome you in just for coffee and cake and stuff, just, uh, you know, feed you up uh, and spend some time with you, sort of hear what's going on. It's the 17th. There you go. There's the brains of the operation. Thursday the 17th uh, of February. We would love to welcome you to that. Let's turn to uh, that passage again there from Romans 2 then. And this morning, Paul carries on from where we've sort of left off last week. And Paul really, I suppose, has been focusing upon hypocrisy. The word actually, as it's first used, literally just means actors, Actors. Uh, I don't know whether you managed to catch the series uh, Outlaws on BBC iPlayer. Uh, very good series. Uh, there's a character here called Greg. Greg is a lawyer, but really his whole life is, is failing around him, and it has been for some time. And he works for this big firm, but Greg's sort of open secret is he, he has this cupboard that is packed to the rafters of all of these documents that he's not done anything with. And the secret is, he doesn't know what to do with them. And here he is, this big lawyer at this big successful firm, and he has no idea what he's doing. And his ongoing constant fear is, someone's going to work out what's in the cupboard, and everything is going to come crashing around him. I wonder if I was to ask you this morning what might be in your cupboard. What would you say? What are you hoping this morning that no one will ask you about? And yet, failure is not our biggest problem this morning. Our biggest problem is actually how we try to deal with that by acting, by hiding. We worry that to admit our failings will mean we're not worthy of love. So we try to pretend we haven't failed at all. Try to pretend we are holding things together. We do a bit of behaviour management. We do a bit of religion. You know, because if we can only make sure that we can say the right things, do the right things, be in the right place at the right time and hold it together, no one will know what a mess we really are. And so, if you take nothing else from today, let it be this. 
your Father in heaven loves you so much, you don't have to pretend. I hope from this passage, you might feel at the end of it, able actually firstly to lay down your mask that you hide behind. To find assurance in Christ's love. And actually for us as a community, to be able to have a kind of radical honesty and openness and vulnerability, able to forgive one another as we embrace our frailty. See, Paul is direct in these verses here, and he's clear in making this attack because he wants you to be aware of your sin, your need of Christ. But he doesn't do this as an end in itself. And he doesn't do it to get at you. He does it actually because he loves you and he does it for your good. John Stott puts it like this. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And that is Paul's aim. His aim is to make you very aware of your failings so that you might see that the cross is done to meet those very same failings. So now he turns the screw on these hypocrites, these actors, and the way they hide, they think, behind religion. And so I want to show you just uh, three things, really, uh, simply in this passage. Firstly, there's a failure of duty. There's a failure in conduct. And then there's this question of identity and the people of God. Firstly, there, there's that failure of duty. There's a bizarre incident after the sinking of the Titanic. A young man arrived at a New York hotel looking for the widow of uh, wealthy Mr. Benjamin Guggenheim of the family who run sort of various art museums, galleries and and whatnot. And he turned up at this hotel uh, wanting to speak to her. He said, we were together, that is him and Mr. Guggenheim, almost to the end. James Etches was a steward on the Titanic who had managed to survive. He said, I was saved, but he went down with the ship. But that isn't what I wanted to tell Mrs. Guggenheim, the New York Times reported. Etches then revealed some of the last moments that he had shared with Benjamin Guggenheim. He said, I could see what they were doing. That is Mr. Guggenheim and his assistant. They were going from one lifeboat to another, helping the women and children. Mr. Guggenheim would shout out, women first, and he was a great assistance to the officers. Things weren't so bad at first, but when I saw Mr. Guggenheim about 45 minutes after the crash, there was great excitement. What surprised me was that both Mr. Guggenheim and his secretary were dressed in their evening clothes, and they'd also removed their life belts that they'd been given. What's that for? I asked. We're dressed in our best and have prepared to go down like gentlemen. He replied. It was then that he told me about a message he had for his wife. And that is what I've come here for, he said. The message read, If anything should happen to me, tell my wife in New York that I've done my best in doing my duty. That was all, Mr. Etcher said. There wasn't time for more. Well, Israel here have had a failure in duty. Verse 17, but we're told now Paul is going to turn the screw and show why these people are hypocrites. These people are trying to hide behind religion. And there's two reasons, that they failed in their duty and they failed in their conduct. 
If you call yourself a Jew, he says, and he's now directly addressing Jews in this instance, those who see that actually they're just a cut above. They're not going to be judged in the same way as Gentiles because of who they are. And now Paul turns to them. If you call yourself a Jew. And then look at some of the benefits that they had actually by this identity. Paul gives four benefits here that they have had. That they have the law. That they know his will. Verse 18. That they approve what's excellent. And that they're instructed from the law. They have a possession of the law, don't they? They have a knowledge. They know his will. They have an ability, at least to some extent, to make judgment. They can approve what's excellent. And they're trained. They're instructed from the law. They have had every opportunity to succeed. Every opportunity to know God. To please God. Everything that Gentiles have not had. And yet look in verses 19 to 20 there of the duties that they also had. There was to be a guide to the blind, a light, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of children. The people of God were always gathered together for God's purpose of gathering the world together. And we see some of these uh, roles that Israel are given through Scripture. Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. We learn that the people of Israel are to be a family who blesses all the earth. God says, I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will also bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The people of God, Israel at this point, were to be a family through whom all families of the earth would be blessed. But secondly, they're also called to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6, tells us, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be the ones who, in the world, represented God, and to present the world to God, just as priests, as mediators. But then they were also to be trophies of God's grace. We read of this in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, he will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. They were to be a trophy of God's grace. That is, it was to be evident amongst them they're a living example of God's grace because they're a small and a weak people. They were to be evidence that he loves despite what they're like. He loves them simply because he loves them, not because there's anything about them that should make him love them. 
This was their role. And this is what they failed in. And this is bigger than any failure of conduct. Was that there was a role, there was a duty far beyond it. You then who teach others, verse 20, do you not teach yourself? Paul exposes them. You don't live up to your duty. And we know that this is true even from rabbis at the time. One rabbi, Saul ben Nanas, a contemporary of Paul, says, Thou hast some men who teach others and do not teach themselves. And we'll return to the conduct of that in a second. But first and foremost, they failed in their duty. They haven't taught themselves, let alone the Gentiles. For all of those things that are claimed, that there are lights to the Gentiles, that they're uh, the ones who are to instruct the foolish and teach children, those are all God-given things. They were supposed to be those things. Paul, Paul's point is not to get funny about them claiming those things. They were supposed to be those things. His point is to say, you haven't done those things. You lay claim to the title, but you don't do it. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They're a PR disaster for God among the nations. See, they felt a pride in their duty, in their sort of sense of calling to enlighten the spiritually ignorant. So surely they were not going to be judged the same way as them. And yet they're not living up to their calling. They failed. They've dishonoured God's name in the nations when they should have gloried it. There's a failure of duty But secondly, there's a failure of conduct. Look at verse 21 there with me. You then who teaches others, do you not teach yourself? Paul turns on those who would judge rebels, the rebels that were written about in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Don't you do the same? That was some of his argument previously, wasn't it? You have no right to judge those of you who judge if you do the same things. See, and you may know people like this. They're good at telling people what not to do and what to do. But they're not so good at doing what they tell people. And we know this is the case even from the Gospels. We know that this is prevalent in first century Judaism. Matthew 23, verses 2 to 4, this is only one example of it. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, Jesus says. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to move them with their finger. Now Paul makes three connected rhetorical questions all drawn from the Ten Commandments to draw them out and to show that they're lawbreakers too. He's going to smoke them out with these in verses 21 to 22. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? While you preach about stealing, the eighth commandment, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Commandments one and two, do you rob temples? Paul actually could have used all ten, I believe. 
but these three are enough. Again, we know that this is accurate. We know that this is not Paul putting an unfair presentation together here. We know that there were people who were strongly, seemingly religious Jews who did the exact same sins they judged. Charles Dodd, a commentator, writes about this. The charges are startling, but Paul would have stultified himself by making them if they had no ground. It's a matter of fact. There is evidence enough of the terrible degradation of Jewish morals in the period preceding the destruction of the temple. That's AD 70. Thus we have a discourse from Paul's younger contemporary, Yochanan ben Zakkai, delivered probably not much more than 10 years after the date of this letter, in which he bewails the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils. This group Paul speaks to would not want to accept that. They would not agree with Paul's judgment. Maybe there are some bad apples, but that's not all of us. And Paul wants to say, yes, it is. Yes, it is all of you. Yes, you do. There are different ways that you can commit the same sins. Think of theft. You don't have to slip on a balaclava, and in the days of COVID, uh, what difference would that make anyway? Um, You don't have to slip on a balaclava, you don't have to grab a sports bag, get the keys to a white transit van, and rob a bank. That's not the only way to steal. Think about your tax return, your benefits claim, illegal streaming. Perhaps you can slip one or two extra items through the self-serve, or your timesheet, or perhaps your wage slips to your employees, or perhaps even you just don't come good on a pledge that you made. There are many different ways to commit the same sin. Think of adultery. You don't have to have a full-blown affair to be unfaithful. Jesus teaches so much, Matthew 5. Everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. That's why one of the requirements of an elder is literally to be a one-woman man. There are many ways to commit the same sins. Think of idolatry. They would say that they hated idols. Albeit, historically, the Jews just as much had worshipped Baal, had worshipped Moloch, had worshipped the Ashtaroths, had done so to the extent of sacrificing their children. And as much as they may have said they hated idols, were willing to go into a temple if it was to rob it. Were willing to have something to do with idols if they could turn a profit on it. And again, there's evidence of all of that. There are different ways you can commit the very same sins. And he wants them to know they're guilty. But secondly, they have no excuse. You who boast in the law, as 23 he says here, you who boast, those, um, the word is difficult to get all the meaning of, it's, it's, it's like a physiological thing. It's, it's about someone who literally holds their neck up high, boasting, peacocking. There's this sort of arrogance and pretension to them. 
You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. Their grand boasting in the law makes all the greater dishonour when they break it. But, here's a question, how is it that they can dishonour God by breaking laws which are actually primarily here against people? Most of those laws that Paul has picked up. Martin Luther writes about the Ten Commandments here, and idolatry in particular. I think it's very helpful. He says here, on what is a God or what is an idol? He says, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him from the whole heart. As I've often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true? And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Therefore, it's the intent of this commandment, that is the first commandment, to have no other gods other than God, to require true faith and trust of the heart which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone. That is as much as to say, see to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another i.e. whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me and look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. If you have a heart that can expect of him nothing but what is good, especially in want and distress, and that moreover renounces and forsakes everything that is not God, then you have the only true God. If, on the contrary, it cleaves to anything else of which it expects more good and help than of God and does not take refuge in him, but in adversity flees from him, then you have an idol, another God. And his point in building all of that up is to say, every other breaking of the law is a failing of the first commandment. He says this, let this suffice with respect to the first commandment, which we have had to explain at length, since it is of chief importance, because, as before said, where the heart is rightly disposed toward God and this commandment is observed, all the others follow. You steal because you believe that there's something in something else that you cannot find in God and that you must go after yourself. You steal because you believe that the portion that God has allotted is not enough. And so you grasp at what isn't yours. You reach out in adultery to the forbidden person because you don't believe that the person that God has given you is enough. Or that you believe that you know better than him in the allotted portion he's given. Or that you believe that it might somehow be better to grasp at forbidden love than to be without You look to other gods because you don't believe that God really is good, that he really is right, he really is perfect in all he's done. Every other failing comes from not believing the first. It doesn't matter if you do it in a more respectable way. It makes no difference. The accusation towards God is the same. 
The problem of sin is far, far beyond the action. It's not about doing certain things at all. That's why it doesn't really matter what it is you do that sin. It doesn't make a difference, really. It's the fact that every sin is a counter-gospel. Every sin is saying that everything that God says of himself isn't true. I must reach out for something he has not afforded me. That's the sin of Adam. All that he has given and what is really good is what you've withheld. You're holding me back. You're holding out on me. And they find themselves in just the same position as the Gentiles that they would look down on because they might say, well, I've not been in orgies. I've not killed anybody. Perhaps not, but no better for it. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Is this harsh? Has every Jew really done this? Who makes sense of Paul's accusations there? I don't think he is harsh. I think we've seen from scripture, we've seen from other contemporaries. This is exactly what was happening. But where are the religious today? Because the religious today aren't so much in organized religion. I would challenge. In fact, actually, the strange thing is that the most radically, militantly religious body today is actually our own secular society. And you can see that. They're even developing their own creed. You can find one of them, incredibly popular one here. Hopefully there's a picture of it there. Um, and there's been a, a very interesting, helpful book uh, written about this from a Christian perspective. This has been called the Secular Creed. Now, views being uh, solidified even into a religious statement here. Beginning in this house, we believe. Much like the Apostles' Creed, we believe. We believe Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no humans are legal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. Of course, much of that we would affirm. And more than affirm, you know, we would say that that's biblical. I think, wouldn't we? We'd, of course, want to support the idea of equal civil rights, of course. The end of discrimination on any grounds, of course. The value of women and challenging misogyny and some of the ways in which that's systemically built in. Yes, of course. The idea of dignity and care for all people, regardless of their background, regardless of their immigration status, yeah, of course. Care for the environment, yes, of course. Protecting the dignity of refugees and asylum seekers especially, who are vulnerable to being prayed upon. Yes, of, of course, we would agree and we would say more than that, it's biblical. And the need for a gracious society, absolutely. We would agree wholeheartedly, wouldn't we? This is all good things. We wouldn't disagree with that. I'd just say it's not at all what happens, even by those who say it. These are taught and applied, not as values as well, but as religious dogmas, with all the sort of force of the Spanish Inquisition, that I swear to you now, if they had a guillotine, they'd use it. They'd use it on you if you break it, and they do. Those who preach the loudest actually wind up being the most hypocritical in society. Article from Anne Applebaum in The Atlantic. 
reflects on the current sort of state. She calls it a new Puritanism. She quotes from a, a novel here. It was no great distance in those days from the prison door to the marketplace. Measured by the prisoner's experience, however, it might be reckoned a journey of some length. So begins the tale of Hester Prynne, as recounted in Nathaniel Hawthorne's most famous novel, The Scarlet Letter. As readers of this classic American text know, the story begins after Hester gives birth to a child out of wedlock and refuses to name the father. As a result, she's sentenced to be mocked by a jeering crowd, undergoing an agony from every footstep to those that throng to see her, as if her heart had been flung into the street for them all to spurn and trample upon. After that, she must wear a scarlet A for adulterer, pinned to her dress for the rest of her life. On the outskirts of Boston, she lives in exile. No one will socialise with her, not even those who've quietly committed similar sins, among them the father of her child, the saintly village preacher. The Scarlet Letter has the effect of a spell, taking her out of the ordinary relations with humanity and enclosing her in a sphere by herself. We read that story, Applebaum says, with a certain self-satisfaction. Such an old-fashioned tale. Even Hawthorne sneered at the Puritans with their sad-coloured garments and grey steeple-crowned hats, their strict conformism, their narrow minds and their hypocrisy. And today, we're not just hip and modern. We live in a land governed by the rule of law. We have procedures designed to prevent the meeting out of unfair punishment. Scarlet letters are a thing of the past. Except, of course, they are not. Right here in America, right now, it is possible to meet people who have lost everything. Jobs, money, friends, colleagues. After violating no laws. And sometimes no workplace rules either. Instead, they have broken or are accused of having broken. Social codes having to do with race, sex, personal behavior, or even acceptable humor, which may not have existed five years ago, or maybe five months ago. Some have made egregious errors of judgment. Some have done nothing at all. It is not always easy to tell. There is a militant, fervent religion within society. And so we're asked, lastly, of this passage here, how do we know who are part of the people of God? How do we know those that are accepted? It's about identity in the people of God. To come back to that secular creed and to that hypocrisy I began to allude to, the interesting thing is that the people who are so militant about this creed are guilty of all of the same sins so often just like these hypocritical Jewish believers here that Paul writes of. Think about women's rights or human rights. Okay, and that's true, except when it comes to saving protected spaces for women. Well, that is not the approach at all, is it? Women's rights or human rights. That seems to go out of the door when it comes to having protected spaces for women. Or perhaps even the use of the nomenclature, woman, or mother. No, women's rights don't seem to be human rights anymore when it comes to using those words. Or think about the way in which that phrase, women's rights to human rights, is simply used as a euphemism to support the rolling out of laxer controls on abortion. And that's all that it really means. Women's rights to human rights, unless that child is a woman. What of her rights? 
My body, my rights. Okay, what of the child? No human is illegal. <laughs> and yet you don't see many people campaigning for those who've previously dabbled with joining ISIS being allowed back into the UK and granted their citizenship. <laughs> Science is real. And all this climate activism. And yet the same people who make these movies and tell all of us poor plebeians what we should be doing and how we ought to be so much better like Leonardo DiCaprio, fly off to their private parties on private planes. Arriving at COP26 in limo after limo. There's a hypocrisy to it all. That kindness is everything. Oh yeah, until someone breaks the creed. And then it's acceptable for people to be persona non grata, unable to make a living. And like I said... If they had a guillotine, they'd use it. Kindness is everything, but not always. Or perhaps these social justice warriors who are at the rallies in their trainers made in sweatshops, streaming it on an iPhone or an Android made by practically slave labor conditions for the mineral miners to get the elements for the chips. Excuse me for not being quite so impressed by the hypocrisy of some of the most militantly religious people in our society. Circumcision is a value if you obey the law. If you break the law, your circumcision becomes nothing. And the point here is that people were looking to circumcision. This is my sign of how I'm in. That really means nothing if you don't live it out. That creed is all good and all, if you were to live it out, but I suggest that no one really does. Has great aims, but doesn't meet them. Circumcisions of value if you obey the law, but if you break it, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Here's the problem. If you're actually marked out as in, as you think, because you're circumcised, well, I'm definitely in the people of God because I've done my ritual, I've done my thing, I must be in, I've met the code. But then if you don't live it out, not only does that not do anything for you, it puts you in a worse position because <laughs> here's the constant reminder of what you should have been doing and you're not. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Circumcision doesn't trump obedience. It's only an outward sign and symbol of an inward reality. People aren't loved by God here because they're circumcised, but because they're loved by God and his, it was a way of recognizing that. It means nothing if there's no substance, no obedience. And you can flip it the other way around. And this is what Paul does in the next verse here, verse 26. That the one who obeys, surely they're more showing their in than the one who doesn't obey but has done the ritual. If a man who's uncircumcised, he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? The point isn't to say that Gentiles do keep the law. They don't. They don't keep it any further. The point is that doesn't faithfulness to God, or shouldn't it, say more about your identity than ritual observance? 
He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Isn't it a shame upon you that there are those who are not claiming to be part of God's people, who are not looking to this outward religious act for their identity and yet actually are in some places keeping this? Doesn't that condemn you who actually have the written code? You think that you're in, but you break the law. Paul explains the logic that's been building up here for us, that obedience is better than any ritual observance. It's better than any sort of supposed privileges from your ethnic background. Obedience is better. It's not just about being seen to do the right thing, but it being in your heart. It's a matter of the heart, we're told, verse 29, by the spirit, not the letter. It all comes about because one truly belonging to God seeks God's praise. Verse 29 continues, his praise isn't from man, but from God. They're tempted to see circumcision as giving sort of such security in their identity that their conduct didn't matter. And we thought about it in the verses last week, that it was, it doesn't matter what I do because of who I am. And Paul destroys that argument. No, no, that's not your security. It's no security. If anything, it should be making you worry a bit more. And we could turn those verses around briefly and think about identity in the people of God and the church as well. Because if you flip sort of circumcision for church membership and for baptism, you have the modern parallel. And again, simply having met the ritual observances means nothing. They're just an outward sign of what God does within us. And yet what obedience is necessary Because Paul has said, chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel, not works, is the power of God for salvation. He's also said that his gospel seeks to bring about the obedience of faith, chapter 1, verse 5. So that the main mark of obedience to God is to place faith in the effectiveness of the death of Jesus for you and his gift of righteousness. Why? Because that recognizes, I can't keep his law. That's Paul's point here to a group of people who believe that they could. No, you can't. You cannot keep his law. And even if I did, how would that leverage God to love me? What pull would that really be to the God of the universe to love me? Really? It recognizes the extent of my sin, that I face the wrath of God, as Paul has put it. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Whatever way it is you do it, whether you're the rebel, whether you're the judgmental type, or whether you're the religious type. And it recognizes that Jesus' offering is enough. It's Jesus' offering that produces a change of heart where you seek his glory. See, religion is no root to righteousness. And it's no substitute for God's righteousness in your place. In fact, all it ever produces is hypocritical failures. 
It doesn't matter what the standard is. It just produces hypocritical failures no matter what. There's a group of religious here who might well miss the grace of God, believing their religion is all they need. And Paul deconstructs that. Because Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter, and our primary purpose in looking through this letter, is that people might ultimately come to faith. And that those who come to faith might be empowered and equipped and encouraged to go out and to share the gospel. But you'll never do that until you know the depths of your sin to see the depths of his grace and mercy for you. You have to first hear the bad news before you'll appreciate the wonder of the vista of God's grace in light of it. There's a religion that will see you guillotined in the public square if you offend the creed. Yet it's full of the same inconsistency and hypocrisies. Lily Haidu Jimez, I hope I've said that name right, uh, she's a Hungarian psychoanalyst considering the Sovietization of Europe in the 40s. She said uh, she diagnosed the trauma of forced conformity in patients uh, as well as herself. And she has this great one-liner. I play the game that's offered by the regime, though as soon as you accept that, you're in a trap. And I think many people find themselves in that trap even today. The gospel says, on the other hand, confess your sins. Refuse to judge. Stop trying to earn God's favor. And trust in Christ. The movie Jerry Maguire, uh, if you've not sort of seen it, and for some of you I suppose it would be quite a vintage movie now, so unfortunately I'll spoil at least one element of the plot for you if you've not seen it. This is great scene towards the end where uh, the love interest turns to Jerry and says, I love, or says of him, I love him for the man he wants to be. And for the man, he almost is. God does not love you for a future version of you where you've cleaned yourself up. Where through the hard work and strain of religion, you fix yourself up. You look a bit better. You look a bit more respectable. He doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you for the person you want to be, not the person that you still fail to be. He loves you for what you're becoming, not what you're not yet. So, it's time to put your mask down and trust in God's grace and stop acting. Your act doesn't work, frankly isn't needed. Instead, we're to turn in dependence and trust that Jesus has done what we can't. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it says, the one who is by faith righteous shall live. It's the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come to these words and they uh, they sting. Uh, they prod us and they poke us and it's never nice maybe to have to reflect within ourselves of our own failings. Especially those failings where actually we've been really trying through some sort of religious observances. We've been really trying to be good, to be better. And to realize that those efforts themselves, as much as our rebellion, don't work and are an affront to you. They say that somehow what you give isn't enough. And nothing could be further from the truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that within our hearts just now and maybe for the thousandth time, I don't know, that we'll come to the end of ourselves. And we'll embrace your grace once again, knowing that this is a passage that ultimately is hopeful. Because at the other end, of taking our legs out from under us, of our perception of our ability to please you in and of ourselves, our ability to make ourselves attractive to you. You love us not for that future version of us, but you love us exactly as we are, for what we're becoming, for what we want to be. That, Lord, your grace is enough. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've done all that we couldn't do, that you've gifted us your righteousness. We are painfully aware, I think, of our lack of righteousness ourselves. That much is obvious. But Lord, we thank you that this book ends with the hope of you gifting your righteousness for us. That we could be free that we could be made new, that we could find life because you have gifted us what we cannot do, that you are everything that we are not. I thank you for such grace to us, Lord, sinners in different ways. Spirit, I pray that you would lead us not only to see The cross is something done by us, something made necessary because of us, but something done for us that we may go free. Thank you, Lord, and pray you'd help us now to go forward in peace and thankfulness in our hearts for all you've done. And as we come to sing again, pray, Lord, you'd help us to worship you for all you are and all you've done. Amen.